I confess to loving books and that until I was 27 years old, I had my most success in the classroom. However, I now realize that neither books nor a classroom are enough to acquire knowledge. Through four excellent mentors, I acquired on-the-job experience to become a good actuary back in the day. They did this, uh, and I learned this over time, by observing them in action by what they did and then by doing projects assigned to me under their guidance. Now, more generally, in the early years of our country, as boys entered their teenage years, they were apprenticed to an expert in a particular occupation to learn by experience from the master in that occupation. True knowledge requires doing something over and over to learn by experience. And mastering any trade requires learning from our mistakes while slowly mastering excellence in that trade. That's God's general grace. Now, the biblical words for knowledge emphasize the importance of experience under the tutelage of the master. to gain the required knowledge of God. This is just how knowledge was gained back in the days of apprenticeship. We should think of ourselves as disciples, learners, apprentices of Jesus Christ. In an excellent illustration of this word knowledge is from the Gospels, and they are in these words from Jesus' last prayer before he went to the cross, and he prayed to the Father. But this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and the one whom thou hast sent, Jesus Christ. To know God is to experience his presence Every moment of our lives. And this experiential knowledge deepens gratitude to him for all he has done for people and has given them in his son. And the final result of this kind of a knowledge is a deeper and more intimate relationship with God. In Aspoth, okay, we know him better and relate to him better as the father of strong and gentle love, but also Jesus as the brother of sacrificial love, and love is all of this and more. So with this as our background, let's dig deeper into our passages this morning. So in John's general epistle written when he was at least in his late 80s, he writes to multi-generational churches bringing out a diversity of good qualities. And first he commends them for what they are doing now. 
So he says, I am writing to you all little children because had been forgiven to you all the sins on account of the name of him. Let's unpack this now. He's writing to them um, in this first paragraph of three sentences about the current status of three different generations that are in these churches. And the term little children is a term of endearment. And speaking chronologically, it would be, you could either call them toddlers, but Certainly pre-kindergarten. In in our lingo, they would not be in kindergarten yet. And what's their particular quality he's bringing out and emphasizing? They have received the first gift of grace to all who are in Jesus by faith. Namely, their sins are forgiven by Jesus, Yeshua, whose name means Savior. He saved them. But little children was also used, and I think this is significant because this is on two levels, physical and spiritual. This was used um, as a term of affection. A teacher would have a certain affection for new disciples, for new learners, so with this as a background, spiritual toddlers could be any age between 3 and 93. John continues, I am writing to you all fathers because you all had known the one from the beginning. So fathers would on one level be middle-aged men or spiritually any who have been used by God to lead people into a saving relationship with him through his son, Jesus. Fathers have a relationship with the eternal God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Through knowing him in every experience in their lives, in every moment of their lives, This knowledge, John is saying, had begun some time ago and continued right up to now, the very present time when he's writing, fathers know the eternal one, the eternal God, they know Jesus. And then he writes, I'm writing to you all, young men, because you all had overcome the evil one. Now, these would be adults, young adults in the prime of life, 18 to 30, the demographic everybody seems to love right now. Okay? And these people had attained victory, Nikao. Now, you may know we pronounce it Nike. That also means victory. It's a big brand name right now. But they had obtained victory over the evil one, who the accuser and adversary, and they're still victorious. They have not yielded any ground. Okay. Now, the next three sentences, and the NIV doesn't bring it out, but I noticed King James did, at least in the last two sentences. He's reminding them of what he had previously written to them. So he starts, I wrote to you all children, because you all had known the Father. 
So he's describing the status of the people, the generations in these churches, as he had described them in a previous letter, which we don't have in scripture. And now he uses a different word for children. Now, the first one was a a term of endearance, uh, endearment addressed to toddlers. But these are kids who are a little bit older. We could refer to it as um, anything maybe from kindergarten through the beginning of middle school, before adolescence. And children of this age, people who have been disciples of Jesus on average for about five years, they've moved beyond knowing their sins are forgiven by the name of the Savior to beginning to have their own experiential knowledge of God as their forever perfect and true Father. He continues to say, I wrote to you all, fathers, because you all had known the one from the beginning. Now, except for the tense of the verb here, I'm writing to you now, I had written to you. This description for spiritual fathers is not changed one single word between these two letters. I'm just taking a stab at it here, but I believe because these are mature followers of God and Jesus, and the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So mature fathers continue to grow in their knowledge of God, but basically they're at this level where fathers know the eternal Jesus. They really know him. Then he concludes this first Big paragraph, the first half of our message this morning. I wrote to you all, young men, because strong you all are being, and the word of the God in you all is remaining, and you all had overcome the evil one. So previously in his letter, he had added two more qualities to these strong young men. He also commended these young adults for their um, strength, their strength, and that they had absorbed God's word so it continued to remain in them. So let's pull this whole first half of our text together this morning, the first paragraph that we're considering from John. Children of God in Jesus know their sins are forgiven in Jesus, and they've begun to know God by experience as their father. These correspond to children before entering puberty or adolescence. Young adults have energy producing action with results. They have strong faith in the Savior, and they have God's word remaining and abiding in them to motivate them to victory over the evil one. And finally, mature, middle-aged disciples of Jesus are fathers who have come to know by experience the eternal three-in-one God. Fathers know the eternal Jesus Christ from before the beginning till after the end. 
Now, in the second half, we're going to see how John issues a strong warning of three internal flaws that could lead these generations, these three generations astray. And then he gives them a solution built on David's testimony that confession results in forgiveness. So first we will see how John talks about wrong desires here, wrong visions and pride before giving them a promise to those who are doing God's will. So he starts off negatively. Not you all must be loving the world, neither the things of the world. If any man may be loving the world, not is being the love of the Father in him. What's going on here? He's saying by way of a strong command, no disciple of Jesus who's growing in the knowledge of the eternal Savior God must ever love the world or the things of the, of the world. The world and all that opposes God and distracts people from following God with all they have and all that they are. He's warning, don't do that. The consequence for all disobeying this command is not having the love of God in them. And I think for any of us who have experienced the love of God, that would be the greatest loss of all to not have his love anymore. Because all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, not it is being from the Father, but from the world it is being. So he's talking about three internal flaws here that can lead people astray from full devotion to God. And any one or more of these three could do it, these flaws of our souls, and we're all different. But the first one is a strong desire to indulge the body in any way at all, including excessive excessive food, excessive exercise, um, excessive clothes hog. There's people with that danger. Any comfort at all that we do to excess, what we can do in moderation and give thanks to God for, that's okay. But don't do any of these things in excess. Secondly, a strong um, desire to have a wrong vision fulfilled This could include material wealth. It could include a beautiful, excessive home, more than what we need or could use. It could even include acquiring great objects of art just for the sake of it, not in gratitude to God. And finally, a pride that leads to wanting position, power, and domination over People. And John says all of these internal driving desires are opposed to God and his giving love. You see, anything that's selfish, anything that we acquire for the sake of that, where's the giving in that? Where's the sharing? Where's the love of God and people? That's what he's talking about. 
None of these flaws is from Father God. All those who desire these things are still of the adversary and the accuser of the world. So he then goes on to say, and the world is being made to pass away and the lust of it. But the one doing the desire or will of God, this one is remaining into eternity, into the eons. So here we have a contrast and a choice. Negatively, we're told everything opposing God will eventually be brought down by God and removed by him. But here, people, is the promise. And this is what I love about God. For all the warnings, for all the negatives, for all the commands, there's always a promise. And here's the promise. Everyone desiring to do what God desires will continue with God and continue in God until forever. So we've come to the end of the John passage, and here's just a short and simple application for all of us. Let us desire a deeper experiential knowledge of God so that we can be spiritual fathers for others and doing his will all the way into eternal and abundant life now and forever. Fathers know the eternal Jesus, and we can all be spiritual parents. Now let's turn to what uh, David said in Psalm 32, and this is one of my favorites because I've been where David has been in this psalm. He speaks of true happiness from being forgiven and the result of Uh, the resulting confession. And because of this, he's trusting in Yahweh's instruction. So once again, I'm going to give pretty much literal uh, translation of the Hebrew words in the order that David spoke them. Happy, being forgiven transgression, being covered sin. Happy man will not count Yahweh to him iniquity and not in his spirit Deceit. Now, the word bless, which is more common in Psalms and Scripture, describes what God does for people by pure grace. It has nothing to do with how people respond to his grace or anything of that nature. When God blesses, he blesses. But this word happy is used for what God does in response to something good that a person or people may do, even if that good is done by his grace. So in this case, why is God making any man happy, including David? It's because he has noticed in this person, there is no deceit or guile. They're synonyms. And then this happy man has three great benefits. His rebellious transgressions even are forgiven. His shortcomings are covered over. And his perversions have been stricken right out of God's account book. You know, I was reading Revelation 20 this morning in my morning devotions. And it says, when everyone is resurrected and stands before God, books will be open. And there will be one of everything we've ever done. 
And that book is enough to condemn any and every person on earth. But it says those whose names are in the book of life by grace through faith in Jesus and have been forgiven, they enter into eternal life with him. So what David is anticipating here is this further knowledge that even though there's all kinds of bad things we've done that have been written in God's account book, through faith in Jesus Christ, they're stricken out, they're removed. David continues, when I held my peace, wasted away my bones in my groaning all day, because day and night it will be heavy on me, thy hand was reversed my moisture in the drought of summer arise. I think this was almost certainly David is talking about when he thought he could get away with using war to murder his faithful soldier Uriah. But as David avoided honest confession to God, he was suffering in body, soul, and spirit, and he knew it would continue until he confessed. Now, in this situation, I think it would be appropriate to translate the Hebrew word salah, which means arise, that he is asking God to um, rise up in his grace so that David may be forgiven. And this is reinforced by the following lines. David now proclaims, my sin I will make known. In my iniquity I did not cover over or try to hide anymore. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and thou, thou have forgiven the iniquity of my sin. When David gave in to God's gracious unsettling of his soul and confessed his transgressions, he broke two of the top ten, right? Adultery, murder. God graciously forgave him. And because of this, he will exalt God. He's exalting God. He's praising him in gratitude. He's stopping. He's thinking it over. What great grace I have received. May we also confess our transgressions to God. And also confess him as the gracious one. Two forms of confession. All who confess their sins, and confess Jesus, they are forgiven. David continues, above this, he will pray every saint to thee in the time of finding. Truly, in floodwaters great, him they will not reach. Thou art a hiding place. From trouble thou will preserve me. Song of deliverance, thou will surround me. Exultation. So we saw last week in Psalm 69, everyone will have floods of some kind, threaten to drown him or her at some point in his or her life. But the good news is we can expect Yahweh to deliver us in some way, even if sometimes... Sat from our point of view, he does it by taking someone home early. But we need to understand that this 
going home younger than what we would expect. That's called the final healing. In fact, our death is always called our final healing. Every physical healing we experience now is only temporary because we all will die. But if our sins are covered over by Jesus and we have eternal life, death is when we will be whole before the Savior and eventually get new bodies. David concludes our passage we heard this morning. I will give insight to thee and instruct thee in the way thou will walk. I will guide thee with my eyes. This is all about being instructed in Christ. The speaker changes. You can tell it's no longer David. God is now speaking and he gives David three promises. So we've had four threes this morning. Here they are. But they were all fulfilled. They weren't fulfilled in David's day, but they're all fulfilled when Jesus Christ came and completed his mission on earth. Remember, he said early in the Sermon on the Mount, I have come to fulfill perfectly the Torah, all the books of Moses, his instruction, insight, instruction, and guidance are all in Jesus Christ. So all of these blessings are now fulfilled in Jesus. And Paul went on to say, whoever will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in his or her heart that God raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead, that one will be saved. So all who confess their sins to God and confess Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their lives. These people are forgiven and saved. All who confess their sins and Jesus are forgiven. And that's what we need more than anything else. So let me pull it all together. All generations in a church reflect different qualities of what God created people to be from childlike faith in the name of the savior to be forgiven through him to the vigor and strength of young adults all the way up to the experiential knowledge of God of fathers. All of these are necessary to overcome our internal flaws that can pull people away, pull us away from God. And God gives great happiness to those who confess to be forgiven by the faith of God's instruction in Jesus. And this is what human fathers are all about. Human fathers know the eternal Jesus and everything about him because they have experienced him and continue to experience him every day of their lives.